The Island of Silver Store, Part Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' Two Hundredth Anniversary Collection, Volume Three. The Island of Silver Store, Part Three. All this time, Mr. Commissioner Portage had been wanting to make a proclamation to the pirates to lay down their arms and go away, and everybody had been hustling him about and tumbling over him while he was calling for pen and ink to write it with. Mrs. Portage, too, had some curious ideas about the British respectability of her nightcap, which had as many frills to it, growing in layers one inside another, as if it was a white vegetable of the artichoke sort, and she wouldn't take the nightcap off and would be angry when it got crushed by the other ladies who were handing things about, and, in short, she gave as much trouble as her husband did. But as we were now forming for the defence of the place, they were both poked out of the way with no ceremony. The children and ladies were got into the little trench which surrounded the silver house. We were afraid of leaving them in any of the light buildings, lest they should be set on fire, and we made the best disposition we could. There was a pretty good store, in point of amount, of tolerable swords and cutlasses. Those were issued. There were also perhaps a score or so of spare muskets. Those were brought out. To my astonishment, little Mrs. Fisher, that I had taken for a doll and a baby, was not only very active in that service, but volunteered to load the spare arms. "'For I understand it well,' says she cheerfully, without a shake in her voice. "'I am a soldier's daughter.' "'And a sailor's sister, and I understand it too,' says Miss Marion, just in the same way. Steady and busy behind where I stood, those two beautiful and delicate young women fell to handling the guns, hammering the flints, looking to the locks, and quietly directing others to pass up powder and bullets from hand to hand, as unflinching as the best of tried soldiers. Sergeant Druce had brought in word that the pirates were very strong in numbers. Over a hundred was his estimate and that they were not, even then, all landed, for he had seen them in a very good position on the further side of Signal Hill, evidently waiting for the rest of their men to come up. In the present pause, the first we had had since the alarm, he was telling this over again to Mr. Macy, when Mr. Macy suddenly cried out, "'The signal! Nobody has thought of the signal!' "'We know no signal, so we could not have thought of it.' "'What signal may you mean, sir?' says Sergeant Druce, looking sharp at him. There is a pile of wood upon the signal hill. If it could be lighted, which never has been done yet, it would be a signal of distress to the mainland. Charker cries directly, Sergeant Roos, dispatch me on that duty. Give me the two men who were on guard with me to-night, and I'll light the fire, if it can be done. And if it can't, Corporal, Mr. Macy strikes in. Look at these ladies and children, sir, says Charker. I'd sooner light myself than not try any chance to save them. We gave him a hurrah. It burst from us, come of it what might, and he got his two men, and was led out at the gate and crept away. I had no sooner come back to my place from being one of the party to handle the gate than Miss Marion said, in a low voice behind me, "'Davis, will you look at this powder? This is not right.' I turned my head. Christian George King again, and treachery again. Sea-water had been conveyed into the magazine and every grain of powder was spoiled. "'Stay a moment,' said Sergeant Roos, when I had told him, without causing a movement in a muscle of his face. "'Look to your pouch, my lad. You, Tom Packer, look to your pouch, confound you.' 
"'Look to your pouches, all you marines!' The same artful savage had got at them, somehow or another, and the cartridges were all unservable. Huh, said the sergeant. "'Look to your loading, men. You are right so far?' "'Yes, we were right so far.' "'Well, my lads and gentlemen all,' says the sergeant, "'this will be a hand-to-hand affair, and so much the better.' He treated himself to a pinch of snuff, and stood up, square-shouldered and broad-chested, in the light of the moon, which was now very bright, as cool as if he were waiting for a play to begin. He stood quiet, and we all stood quiet, for a matter of something like half an hour. I took notice from such whispered talk as there was, how little we that the silver did not belong to thought about it, and how much the people that it did belong to thought about it. At the end of the half-hour it was reported from the gate that Sharker and the two were falling back on us, pursued by about a dozen. "'Sally! Gate-party under Gil Davis,' says the sergeant, "'and bring em in, like men now!' We were not long about it, and we brought them in. "'Don't take me,' says Charker, holding me round the neck, and stumbling down at my feet when the gate was fast. "'Don't take me near the ladies or the children, Gil. They had better not see death, till it can't be helped. They'll see it soon enough.' "'Harry,' I answered, holding up his head. "'Comrade!' He was cut to pieces. The signal had been secured by the first pirate party that landed. His hair was all singed off, and his face was blackened with the running pitch from a torch. He made no complaint of pain, or of anything. "'Good-bye, old chap,' was all he said, with a smile. "'I've got my death. And death ain't life, is it, Gil?' Having helped to lay his poor body on one side, I went back to my post. Sergeant Druce looked at me, with his eyebrows a little lifted. I nodded. "'Close up here, men, and gentlemen all,' said the sergeant. "'A place too many in the line.' The pirates were so close upon us at this time that the foremost of them were already before the gate. More and more came up with a great noise, and shouting loudly. When we believed from the sound that they were all there, we gave three English cheers. The poor little children joined, and were so fully convinced of our being at play that they enjoyed the noise, and were heard clapping their hands in the silence that followed. Our disposition was this. Beginning with the rear, Mrs. Venning, holding her daughter's child in her arms, sat on the steps of the little square trench surrounding the silver house, encouraging and directing those women and children as she might have done in the happiest and easiest time of her life. Then there was an armed line, under Mr. Macy, across the width of the enclosure, facing that way and having their backs toward the gate, in order that they might watch the walls and prevent our being taken by surprise. Then there was the space of eight or ten feet deep, in which the spare arms were, and in which Miss Marion and Mrs. Fisher, their hands and dresses blackened with the spoilt gunpowder, worked on their knees, tying such things as knives, old bayonets, and spearheads to the muzzles of the useless muskets. Then there was a second armed line, under Sergeant Druce, also across the width of the enclosure, but facing to the gate. Then came the breastwork we had made, with a zigzag way through it for me and my little party, to hold good in retreating as long as we could, when we were driven from the gate. We all knew that it was impossible to hold the place long, and that our only hope was in the timely discovery of the plot by the boats, and in their coming back. I and my men were now thrown forward to the gate. From a spy-hole I could see the whole crowd of pirates. There were Malays among them, Dutch, Maltese, Greeks, Sambos, Negroes, and convict Englishmen from the West India Islands. Among the last, him with the one eye and the patch across the nose. 
There were some Portuguese, too, and a few Spaniards. The captain was a Portuguese, a little man with very large earrings under a very broad hat, and a great bright shawl twisted about his shoulders. They were all strongly armed, but like a boarding party, with pikes, swords, cutlasses, and axes. I noticed a good many pistols, but not a gun of any kind among them. This gave me to understand that they had considered that a continued roll of musketry might perhaps have been heard on the mainland. Also that, for the reason that fire would be seen from the mainland, they would not set the fort in flames and roast us alive, which was one of their favourite ways of carrying on. I looked about for Christian George King, and if I had seen him, I am much mistaken if he would not have received my one round of ball cartridge in his head. But no Christian George King was visible. A sort of wild Portuguese demon, who seemed either fierce mad or fierce drunk, but they all seemed one or the other, came forward with the black flag, and gave it a wave or two. After that the Portuguese captain called out in shrill English, "'I say, you English fools! Open the gate! Surrender!' As we kept close and quiet, he said something to his men which I didn't understand, and when he had said it, the one-eyed English rascal with the patch, who had stepped out when he began, said it again in English. It was only this. "'Boys of the black flag, this is to be quickly done. Take all the prisoners you can. If they don't yield, kill the children to make them. Forward!' Then they all came on at the gate, and in another half-minute were smashing and splitting it in. We struck at them through the gaps and shivers, and we dropped many of them too, but their very weight would have carried such a gate if they had been unarmed. I soon found Sergeant Druce at my side, forming us six remaining marines in line, Tom Packer next to me, and ordering us to fall back three paces, and as they broke in, to give them our one little volley at short distance. Then, says he, receive them behind your breastwork on the bayonet and at least let every man of you pin one of the cursed cockchafers through the body. We checked them by our fire, slight as it was, and we checked them at the breastwork. However, they broke over it like swarms of devils. They were, really and truly, more devils than men. And then it was hand to hand, indeed. We clubbed our muskets and laid about us. Even then those two ladies, always behind me, were steady and ready with the arms. I had a lot of Maltese and Malays upon me, and— but for a broadsword that Miss Marion's own hand put in mine, should have got my end from them. But was that all? No. I saw a heap of banded dark hair and a white dress come thrice between me and them, under my own raised right arm, which each time might have destroyed the wearer of the white dress, and each time one of the lot went down, struck dead. Druce was armed with a broadsword too, and did such things with it that there was a cry in half a dozen languages of "'Kill that sergeant!' as I knew, by the cry being raised in English, and taken up in other tongues. I had received a severe cut across the left arm a few moments before, and should have known nothing of it, except supposing that somebody had struck me a smart blow, if I had not felt weak, and seen myself covered with spout in blood, and at the same instant of time seen Miss Marion tearing her dress and binding it with Mrs. Fisher's help around the wound. They called to Tom Packer, who was scouring by, to stop and guard me for one minute while I was bound, or I should bleed to death in trying to defend myself. Tom stopped directly, with a good sabre in his hand. In that same moment, all things seemed to happen in that same moment, at such a time, half a dozen had rushed howling at Sergeant Druce. The sergeant, stepping back against the wall, stopped one howl forever with such a terrible blow, and waited for the rest to come on, with such a wonderfully unmoved face, 
that they stopped and looked at him. "'See him now!' cried Tom Packer. "'Now, when I could cut him out! Gil, did I tell you to mark my words?' I implored Tom Packer in the Lord's name, as well as I could in my faintness, to go to the sergeant's aid. "'I hate and detest him,' says Tom, moodily wavering. "'Still, he is a brave man.' Then he calls out, "'Sergeant Drews! Sergeant Drews! Tell me you have driven me too hard, and are sorry for it!' The sergeant, without turning his eyes from his assailants, which would have been instant death to him, answers, "'No, I won't!' "'Sergeant Drews!' cries Tom, in a kind of agony. "'I have passed my word that I would never save you from death, if I could, but would leave you to die. Tell me you have driven me too hard, and are sorry for it, and that shall go for nothing!' One of the group laid the sergeant's bald bare head open. The sergeant laid him dead. "'I tell you,' says the sergeant, breathing a little short, and waiting for the next attack, "'No, I won't. If you are not man enough to strike for a fellow-soldier because he wants help, and because of nothing else, I'll go into the other world and look for a better man.' Tom swept up upon them and cut him out. Tom and he fought their way through another knot of them, and sent them flying, and came over to where I was beginning again to feel, with inexpressible joy, that I had got a sword in my hand. They had hardly come to us when I heard, above all the other noises, a tremendous cry of women's voices. I also saw Miss Marion, with quite a new face, suddenly clap her two hands over Mrs. Fisher's eyes. I looked towards the silver house, and saw Mrs. Venning, standing upright on top of the steps of the trench, with her grey hair and her dark eyes, hide her daughter's child behind her, among the folds of her dress, strike a pirate with her other hand, and fall, shot by his pistol. The cry rose again and there was a terrible and confusing rush of women into the midst of the struggle. In another moment something came tumbling down upon me that I thought was the wall. It was a heap of sambos who had come over the wall, and of four men who clung to my legs like serpents. One who clung to my right leg was Christian George King. "'Yup, soldier,' says he. "'Christian George King's a very glad soldier, prisoner. Christian George King been waiting for soldier such a long time. Yup, yup. What could I do, with five-and-twenty of them on me, but be tied hand and foot? So I was tied hand and foot. It was all over now, boats not come back, all lost. When I was fast bound and was put up against a wall, the one-eyed English convict came up with a Portuguese captain to have a look at me. See, says he, here's the determined man. If you had slept sounder last night, you'd have slept your soundest last night, my determined man. The Portuguese captain laughed in a cool way, and, with the flat of his cutlass, hit me crosswise, as if I were the bough of a tree that he played with. First on the face, then across the chest and the wounded arm. I looked him steady in the face without tumbling while he looked at me. I am happy to say. But when they went away, I fell, and lay there. The sun was up, when I was roused and told to come down to the beach and be embarked. I was full of aches and pains, and could not at first remember but I remembered quite soon enough. The killed were lying about all over the place, and the pirates were burying their dead, and taking away their wounded on hastily made litters to the back of the island. As for us prisoners, some of their boats had come round to the usual harbour to carry us off. We looked a wretched few, I thought, when I got down there. Still, it was another sign that we had fought well, and made the enemy suffer. The Portuguese captain had all the women already embarked on the boat he himself commanded, which was just putting off when I got down. Miss Marion sat on one side of him, and gave me a moment's look, as full of quiet courage and pity and confidence as if it had been an hour long. On the other side of him was poor little Mrs. Fisher, 
weeping for their child and her mother. I was shoved into the same boat with Druce and Packer, and the remainder of our party of marines, of whom we had lost two privates besides Charker, my poor brave comrade. We all made a melancholy passage under the hot sun over to the mainland. There we landed in a solitary place, and were mustered on the sea sand. Mr. and Mrs. Macy and their children were amongst us, Mr. and Mrs. Porridge, Mr. Kitten, Mr. Fisher, and Mrs. Beltot. We mustered only fourteen men, fifteen women, and seven children. Those were all that remained of the English who had lain down to sleep last night, unsuspecting and happy, on the island of Silver Store. End of the Island of Silver Store, Part 3